His origin story is quite remarkable as well. He grew up as a locksmith's son, so instead of playing with G.I. Joes when he was a, a young kid, he was picking locks. Unfortunately, the proximity card readers can still be infiltrated hand-to-hand. Welcome, everybody, to Episode 2 of Security in Focus Podcast, hosted by Umbrella Technologies. This podcast is dedicated to the truth about security, entrepreneurship, and business. Not in that order. Here's your host, Thomas Carnival, founder of Umbrella Technologies. I am so excited to have a friend of mine in the industry. He is one of those guys I have just admired. He has done some incredible things in the space, in the industry for a very long time. He's also one of those friends that we can just talk between the two of us about technical things for hours on end when it would bore uh, and put other people to sleep. But for me and him, it's something that uh, excites us and we like dreaming about certain things. We uh, enjoy exposing things. And, and, And what I really also love is that Michael and I have sat down and he has sent me pictures of different uh, wiring configurations over the years and quizzes me uh, and says, here's this picture. Tell me what's wrong. I don't have any other friend in my life that will send me a wiring diagram of an access control panel and quiz me. And if you don't have a friend like that, you need to get one. So I am so pleased uh, to introduce Michael Glasser. He is the founder of Glasser Security. He has over two decades of experience in the physical security industry. He has probably close to a dozen different uh, certifications. He is a CPP, PSP, PCI, CSPM, CEH, CISSP, and has been responsible for securing hospitals, critical infrastructure, from universities, museums, Fortune 500 corporations, and he is just a really wonderful gift to the physical security industry. Please welcome everybody, my friend and guest, Michael Glasser. Michael, thank you so much for being on the show for me. Good morning, Tom. You're very welcome. Thanks for having me on. Wonderful. So today we're going to start class with a little bit of a movie. This was a movie that came out in 1991 which doesn't seem like it's that long ago, but it certainly it certainly is by the math. Terminator 2 hit theaters in uh, July of 1991, and in it is this short clip of Mr. John Connor hacking a access control door inside Cyberdyne Systems. So enjoy this. My card should access this thing. What? What is it? Damn it. The silent alarm's been tripped. It's neutralized all the codes in the entire building. Nothing will open anywhere now. You guys get started on the lab. I can open this. Okay, uh, this is obviously Hollywood, and they're and they're making it look fancy with the countdown and the pin number uh, extraction. But the Wiegand protocol in access control has really not changed in over forty years. And I think you know, regardless of how it's done or how it's done incorrectly for Hollywood, 
I think the point is still the same. You, things like this can happen, whether you use a BE key or you use another type of uh, device, the, the Wigan protocol, and unfortunately, the majority of proximity card readers can still be infiltrated hand-to-hand. What is your perspective on the state of kind of access control in Wigan and how easy it is still in 2019 uh, for access control systems to be infiltrated? Around 2003, I spoke at the Black Hat Conference, which is a fairly well-known hacker conference. And one of my topics was hacking access control systems. And I didn't uh, didn't build any tools or any real proof of concept. I just went through the, the vulnerabilities that by design were inherent to the systems at the time. Things like the ability to clone magnetic stripe cards, clone proximity cards, uh, use man in the middle and other types of attacks against the Wii game protocol, uh, do data extraction from unsecured databases uh, behind the access control systems and uh, things of that nature. Fast forward approximately 15 years, and the industry has provided solutions for every one of the challenges that I identified. However, industry hasn't implemented those solutions on most projects. The majority of the work that's out there has been out there for a while. You walk into a building, and it's pretty rare that it has a brand new access control system unless it's a brand new building or they just had a refresh of some type. So the industry as a whole is still very much susceptible to the same attacks as before. Now, do we blame do we blame the end users? They bought a perfectly good product in their mind that when they swipe the card, the door opens. 15 years later, someone says, hey, did you know that, that a, uh, an attacker can clone your card? And they go, well, what do you mean? And then they say, well, it's not necessarily even an attacker now. You can go out to your local convenience store, which they have one of these in my hometown, and you can get a copy of your key made. And on the more advanced ones now, they'll even copy your proximity card. This isn't an attack method. This isn't a hacker. This is a service. Copy my key like I copy from my front door. Copy my proximity card like I want a copy from my front door. That's the state of the technology there. Uh, behind the scenes, there's also issues like database security. Well, even back then, there were ways to secure your database more more than just having it out there. Uh, but currently, uh, people are getting more, more vigilant about putting in place controls, sometimes even encryption. Certainly on the enterprise scale, these controls and encryption and whatnot are, are, are just a standard policy. But more often than not, if you go to a typical building in a typical city, and you look at the typical system that's been installed, all these same vulnerabilities are still there. Proximity cards, maybe smart cards that are not using any kind of customized encryption key. So they're still clonable. Um, probably weekend communication, even though there are solutions out there. Probably sitting in some computer in the building manager's office that if ever is locked, they're lucky. And probably does not have hard disk encryption on probably does not have the database encrypted and probably has a database still with the default username and password. And all of these things are absolutely corrected or correctable by the industry. The industry has made strides in that. I'm happy that some of the industry organizations, uh, some some of the industry associations 
have made efforts to to put corrections in place and establish standards to help correct these things. Uh, but as you noted, a lot of it is still out there. And even the things that are being put in brand new today, a lot of it is not taking advantage of any of those improvements that the industry has provided. It, it, it really continues to frustrate me. And, you know, because you and I both know that the technology is very much readily available. There's been the OSDP protocol, which has been introduced for some time. It's just never taken flight, really, for all intent and purposes. It hasn't really come in, into its own. There's even, you know, edge device power over Ethernet PoE readers that are available, but only with, you know, somewhat proprietary software configuration. There isn't, it isn't like the video surveillance industry where, you know, you have your VMS community and then have OnVIF capable, you know, brands of cameras that can integrate into it. It's a much more narrow playing field. So I guess... My my next question is twofold. Is is this maybe a manufacturer's conspiracy or or is it a lack of care or is it just a money thing? The last part, I somewhat have a hard time justifying in my own head because I've really thought through it because you look at the demand of video surveillance, they could have easily said, oh, well, analog is everywhere, you know, so so let's just keep building analog devices all around it. And so we're compatible with the core infrastructure. No one's going to change it. So I guess we'll stay analog. That didn't happen. I mean, yes, it took maybe, I mean, bookend to bookend, 10 years of tripping and falling and encoders and um, HD over coax, you know, devices. Um, and then finally years to get OnVIF Profile S corrected. Um, but with 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 access control, you would still think, yeah, we're not going to just rest on our laurels and and say Wigan is the is the legacy install base, so we're not going to create innovation and and more secure d devices because we don't want to rip out a cable or we don't want to change out a panel. It, the the logic of it just only being a money thing doesn't necessarily make a hundred percent of this the case for me because that can still happen you look at video surveillance maybe it's a bigger industry they were able to do it what do you think have to have to sort of chunk that a little bit starting with osdp never taking flight well i don't agree on that i I'd, I'd say that there are a lot of osdp jobs going on uh, across main enterprises or major enterprises, major large customers, I'd say most are going with OSDP. Good. But if they have 100,000 readers that are already weekend, uh, they're not going to be OSDP tomorrow. It takes time for the transition. Uh, I believe that the industry as a whole is, is at the tipping point where OSDP will become, uh, for any higher-end project, will become the default standard. It's certainly for most of the consultants that I know, it is what they specify on every job at this point. Right. There are very, very few projects that I see from uh, educated consultants that are still specifying weekend and are not specifying OSTP. And when they are, for the most part, it's because they're going into a legacy environment uh, and they don't want to have one device that's the exception to the rule. A thousand readers that are on Wigand, a thousand panels that are on Wigand, and now two that are OSTP. It's it's not good business 
to mess with someone's maintenance program that way, uh, with the exception of a proof of concept or similar. So I'd say OSDP is very similar in my mind right now to how Onvif uh, initially really, it seemed like it would be great. It seemed like everyone would just use Onvif for everything and all direct integrations would be gone. And 10 years in, that's not the case. There's still direct integrations. Uh, but as, as we look at the state of video technology and you look at simply pulling an RTSP stream, most of the higher-end video systems, I can just pull an RTSP stream. I don't need OnVIF. I don't need integration. But if you want to start having any more advanced features, being able to push settings to cameras, being able to do edge-based recording, being able to do uh, motion detection on the camera and sending alarm events and event information back and forth, then we need that integration. I believe OnVIF is a, is a wonderful, wonderful a standard and a wonderful approach to video. I think that as we move forward, as I've said for many years, I think we'll get more and more projects uh, and will uh, become more and more of a standard and allow for less integrations, but it's not there today. And I feel that's, that's, let me, let me clarify. I'm not saying Onvif isn't there today. I'm saying the industry as a whole isn't using it to that way, uh, in that way today. And when you talk about OSDP and similar technologies, I feel it's pretty pretty much similar. Um, OSDP can do everything that we again could do and more, with very very few exceptions. Some things, for example, uh, that are very common on large buildings would be to have a weekend splitter. So you'd have one reader of proximity cards on the front of a turnstile. It's a low security reader with a low security protocol. And when any number of clients, all of which had their own WIGAND, I'm sorry, their own proximity cards with different numbers swiped on that reader, a WIGAND splitter would then choose based on the protocol uh, or based on, I'm sorry, not the protocol, the bit pattern, it would choose where to spit out uh, the string. So if you had three tenants, four tenants, five tenants in a building, it could then send that WIGAND string only to the appropriate tenant based on the bit pattern, the card range. And that tenant's access control system could decide whether to let the person in or not. That way, if they didn't have any integrated back end, which most of the systems didn't, uh, all the access and terminations were managed by the tenants themselves as opposed to the base building. That's a very common application. Today, OSDP doesn't have any provisions for being split. It's an end-to-end -end protocol. It's not meant to be a single point to multi-point protocol. I'm working with a couple of different vendors requesting that they build a, uh, a splitter device so that we add that feature back in uh, for similar customers. Right. But with all that said, why isn't OSDP used more? Just like anything else, it's new, it's shiny, people are scared. The integrators and other people that are have been doing Wigand for 20 years know it's safe. If I do what I did yesterday, I'm not going to have surprises. Whether it's concrete or it's washing windows or it's cooking food, if I do what I did yesterday, I'm not going to have a surprise. I know what I'm getting. And it's scary to try something new. Um, but those that are those that are in the know and those that are, are, are looking to move forward, I believe are absolutely using OSDP. Sure. And uh, interestingly, OSDP right now is over RS-45, but there are also are provisions for OSDP over, over IP so that you can end up with IP-attached readers, which are certainly out there today. And those can also take advantage of the standardized protocol of OSDP as opposed to having to write custom integrations. So there's some very interesting stuff out. Uh, I'm sorry, not stuff. Uh, very interesting things about OSDP and the, the changes in the industry. 
One note I would like to add, though, is about encryption. Mm -hmm. uh, OSDP includes the option of encryption. It doesn't inherently include encryption. And this is something that I've gotten to a, a bit of an argument with people about. Wigand is an unencrypted published protocol. Uh, it's a parallel protocol. Right. If you know the Wigand protocol, you can you can infiltrate it, basically. Absolutely. And you can find it on the internet. It's published. It's standard. An unencrypted, uh, unencrypted parallel protocol that's been fully published. Yep. OSTP is an unencrypted serial protocol over RS-45 that's been fully published and understanding there's an IP version. Um, that is no more secure. It, it is limited to 128-bit AES, though, correct? Uh, well, let's clarify. Most of the time, it's unencrypted, not encrypted, unencrypted right. OSDP. You have the option through SCP to add encryption, but most of the implementations I see people doing are still unencrypted, meaning you're going from an unencrypted parallel protocol that's published to an unencrypted serial protocol that's published. It adds some features, but it's not adding security. You have to add the uh, the encryption, the SCP, to add any level of security. The only only additional level of security right now is there's less tooling available for doing bypasses in OSDP. Uh, but other than that, that that'll certainly be over soon. Uh, other than that, if you're not turning on the encryption, there's no point. That's a really good point and a, and a good bridge to to this because you do have to add that layer of encryption. So it is another step. It is another you know, piece of work that needs to be done. And some other inherent differences between Wigan uh, versus OSDP is, you know, cable length limitation. Wigan is 150 meters, whereas OSDP can go up to 500. You know, bi-directional comms, OSDP does have it. Wigan does not. We've already talked about, like, encryption, but there's also cab cabling. You know, with Wigan, it's typically copper. OSDP can be UDP serial or even TCP IP. Tamper is included with OSDP and it's and it's bi-directional support whereas Wigan is only unidirectional. The reality though still is it is more from a wiring perspective and configuration perspective there is quote unquote more cost involved in OSDP versus Wigan which you know, for right now in this, you know, phase one, phase two, I'm not sure what we're in, and it's an adoption, it makes it more complicated. There's just, the reality is it's more, it's a more complex wiring. Um, it, it's, uh, it has multiple profiles, like we've indicated, which, you know, add complications and complexities to the installation. What, what else would you add to that about the, the complications and the cost to OSDP? Respectfully, I have to disagree with you on the increased cost of OSDP. Okay. The wiring is less money. Uh, the wiring can typically be a, a, a less expensive cable, uh, which is standard RS-45 cable, which is typically being used for other things on the project anyway. Sure. Uh, as opposed to weekend cable. It's typically less conductors than weekend would require since it's using data to control things like the beeper uh, like the LED controls. Yep. So the, the cabling is less. The equipment from most major manufacturers includes both functionalities at no difference in price. Some do have a difference in price, but most I'm seeing out there, uh, Mercury uh, is by far the leader uh, I see when it comes to access control hardware that's available from multiple vendors, but there are yep. plenty of other vendors out there. Mercury's boards will take weekend or OSDP. 
So once you have the board, it's just a choice of which protocol does it does it uh, communicate on. Several readers are doing the same thing. So when it comes to hardware and cabling, I find that OSDP is a reduction in cost, not an increase in cost. That's great. The only time I see an increase in cost is when the integrators are scared because they're doing something new. There is some additional labor to add the encryption key, but that is incredibly minimal. The first time it takes you an hour, the second time it takes you a couple of minutes, like most things in life. Sure. Um, the the encryption key management is is just a minor piece, assuming you even put on the encryption key. If you don't, it just works out of the box. Yep. Uh, there certainly have been some learning curve things about uh, terminating resistors, which are, are part of the RS-45 standard to manage reflections. But in my opinion, it is less costly if planned properly, because nothing's worse than getting out on the job, having an OSDP reader, running an OSDP cable, getting to a control panel and finding out, oh, this control panel doesn't support OSDP. I didn't do my homework all the way through. That That is unpleasant. Uh, and then you're going to deal with cost of return and labor and everything else. Uh, but it's my opinion, uh, respectfully, that OSDP, when implemented and designed properly, should be less cost a weekend, not more. I mean, that's nothing but a good thing. I'm, gra- I'm glad you brought that up. I think that there is inherently a lack of education and training on this issue. And I also think that manufacturers, in some cases, need to do a better job of training. What, what are you seeing in regards to, to training for the security you know, installers of the world for access control with this value proposition of OSDP? That's a great question. And there's a couple of different approaches that the industry is taking. The Security Industry Association has, uh, I believe, run their second OSDP boot camp, targeting integrators to teach them about OSDP, uh, which I think is a terrific thing. For the most part, I have not seen manufacturers pushing it, with the exception of manufacturers that are financially incentivized to. For example, uh, Cypress, who makes OSDP devices, uh, they've been speaking at trade shows and similar about the benefits of OS, OSDP. Most of the main manufacturers of access control systems I have not seen really pushing it. Now, I'm sure that as soon as I say that, every manufacturer will point to a link on their website or a blog post or a, a post on LinkedIn. But when I walk around a trade show, I don't hear people barking OSDP at me, except from a, a very limited set of directions, like SIA, like Cypress, uh, like some of the, the specialist groups. Uh, with that said, in the 1950s, my grandfather drove a Cadillac. And in that Cadillac, there were no seatbelts. And he bought used seatbelts from an airplane and installed them in the backseat of his Cadillac so that his children would have seatbelts. He took the initiative do what he thought was right, even though the industry and the manufacturers didn't provide for it. Parallel that today's market, and there are companies out there uh, like Spider Security Products that are building these bridge devices. They have a, a device they call the Spider Blocker, which is is effectively a, a relay disconnect module that if someone were to pull a reader off the wall, a weekend reader, though it technically would work with OSDP as well. It physically cuts the wires to the reader until reset from the system to help alleviate some of the risks with Weekend and with with physically attacking uh, protocols and communication buses. So these these Band-Aid type devices exist uh, while the industry is, is training up on OSDP, training up on more secure protocols. And I don't think 
anyone will really push it unless there's a financial incentive to. And that financial incentive is only going to be driven by the integrators and the end users. Manufacturers will, will sell what sells. Certainly, they will innovate and come out with a new product. But from my experience, that new product has to give them a competitive advantage and allow them to make money. No one comes out with a pro. Well, I don't want to say no one. There's plenty of people come out with products that don't make money, but no one wants to come out with a product that doesn't make money unless it's going to somehow uh, really bring in that business and that visibility. Right. So, considering that most of the major manufacturers now do have OSDP compliant hardware, most of the major card reader manufacturers do have OSDP compatible card readers, compliant card readers. At this point now, it's just up to the industry to accept. Uh, this as the new norm. We no longer have to have converter modules at every door. We no longer have to have converter modules at every panel. No longer have to pull our hair out wondering, will this take off and will manufacturers accept it? It's here. It's now. It's the right thing to do for the customer. Let me go back to the, the seatbelt example. Now, I'm, I'm, I'm too young to remember some of the things that my grandfather told me about but I question in advertising if manufacturers ever advertise seatbelts, if they ever advertised airbags. Probably could search the internet and find that they did a bit. But until there was regulation and real push from industry, I questioned how strong of an issue that was. Uh, for my grandfather, those seatbelts were important and probably uh, partly why I'm here. Because if those seatbelts weren't there, I don't know if my parents would have survived. For the industry, I'm hoping that now that the majority of manufacturers have OSDP support and the education is available out there, that the integrators and end users simply say, yes, of course, I'm going to wear my seatbelt. Of course, we're going to use OSDP. Why wouldn't we? Well, yeah, I mean, it's 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 like anything else. It's a great example of your grandfather knowing knowing the risks and taking the initiative to, you know, put security first for his family. And that's what I think um, the security managers of the of the worlds and IT directors and security consulting and specifiers need to really do is the, the, the reality still is the majority of security system integrators go what they know. I mean, you said it before, and, and, and this is a problem in any space, in any transition, in any technology. Oh, well, it worked yesterday. Why change it? And like you said, the learning curve is not day and night. It takes, it's just like anything else. It takes a little bit of preparation, but ultimately can deliver a more cost-effective, more secure solution. You know, I, I've been involved in my career in introducing a new technology where it wasn't supported by any software platform or any existing system and built a grassroots uh, campaign door by door, manufacture, you know, VMS by v VMS and had to get it integrated one by one. And I and you have to start with the end user demand and pull it through to the training and education of the system integrators and to ultimately benefit um, the technology ecosystem. So I think that there's a lot of opportunity with this. And I'm glad I learned more about it from you just sitting right here. I, I think maybe we could probably have a whole podcast on OSDP, but I, I want to also bring up the benefits of video surveillance integration with access control systems and what your experience is with that and maybe some examples of how you've seen it done really wrong and, and how it should be configured and optimized for an end user. Well, Tom, I'd love to answer that question, but I'd I feel I'd be 
I'd be negligent if I didn't uh, just cover one more thing on door security as a whole. Sure. Uh, a lot of focus is given. A, a lot of focus is given to the card reader technology right now because there's a lot of YouTube videos and uh, uh, over the years uh, from when Zach put out the Gecko in 2008 to do man in middle attacks on weekend to more recently BLE keys and ESP keys and all those things. Uh, a lot of people are forgetting about the rest of the door. It's it's something that you really need to be aware of, that the technology isn't the only thing. If I can bypass the door with a coat hanger without setting off alarms, there's there's not much concern about me attacking the reader. It really is the weakest link. So I'll, I'll close out the OSTP conversation by saying that I'm glad we're fixing one portion of the industry, but until until we understand the entirety of what we're securing, and all the different attack methods, including things as simple as tailgating and social engineering, all of it. We need to look at the opening of what is what is our goal, what are we trying to offer to the industry, what are we trying to offer to our customers, and really plan it accordingly. There's nothing makes a customer more frustrated than spending all this money to put an encrypted smart card with OSDP and all these other wonderful things, and then somebody can walk up with a coat hanger and hit an inside lever, and uh, it hits the racks and it lets them in without setting off a single alarm. On that note, I'm happy to move to your video question. Sure. Because the two are connected. Yep. But if you use that same example and someone comes up with a coat hanger and hits that inside lever, the video surveillance will not have an alarm. It will not have an event uh, triggered. So we have to look at the entirety of it. Now, integrating access and video has been done for many years, well over a decade, probably over two decades. When I was first starting in it, it was done through Relay Logic. And some people were able to do on the really advanced systems an RS-232 connection or a serial connection. And uh, some of the old Pelco matrix, mat matrixes, matrices, <laughs> uh, the Pel Pelco big, big boxes in the rack. Yep. Uh, you'd hook them up via serial and it would automatically pop up your video on alarms, which is really cool. Really, really, really cool. Fast forward to today and Axcon video are, are integrated on most decent systems so that you can quickly have an alarm pop up or you can look at an alarm event in the audit trail and have the associated video. The same is true now with burglar alarms and even people's houses. A lot of the burglar alarms and cameras on people's houses now have it integrated. And just a default, it's a must have. The ability to quickly verify a, a live video of what's going on is just an absolute must. Anyone not doing it, I feel is really remiss. And, um, I'm I'm happy to provide more insight into it for you if you have any targeted questions. Um, have you seen any specific vertical markets um, adopt uh, access control and, and video surveillance integration more than others? In your experience, is this is this more? I mean, I I know if you have access control, not integrating a camera with it is probably you know if budgets were endless uh of course every app vertical market but what what vertical markets do you see it being the most effective uh with any market that has alarm response alarm response and when you categorize that into verticals if you go into multi-tenant buildings, multi-tenant commercial buildings, even some multi-tenant residential buildings. A lot of the times they're not they're not watching alarms. After the fact if someone complains oh someone was in the mechanical room or uh we caught someone here or there, they may go and pull an audit trail. But as far as live response, having a, a little security command center or a reception desk or someone watching for those alarms and actually actively responding, 
that's that's the the key difference I've seen on who absorbs or who accepts it and uh, really uses it. Um, I I'm coming from a biased position though that the customers I work with are typically interested in doing things right. They're there are plenty of customers out there who don't work with consultants, plenty of customers out there who want whatever is cheapest and fastest, and I just don't have much experience with them. Uh, the last time I dealt with those type of customers was a lot of years ago. So I have a, a skewed viewpoint when it comes to this particular question because I'm only exposed to those that want to do a good job uh, and want to do this right. I only have one customer over the last decade that said no, and they said no for a very valid reason, which is that uh, the two disparate systems or their access control and their video system they were using, they had tried integrating in the past and they had consistent issues with version control. And because of the amount of stress they had over version control, they decided it was a worthwhile risk for them not to have the integrated system and to manually pull up video just to eliminate the stress and system instability caused by version control. And while I didn't agree in theory in practicality, when they explain the amount of pain they'd gone through with trying to get this manufacturer and that manufacturer to play nice and keep the versions aligned, I understood why they went and uh, made that decision. It wasn't a bad decision. I, I didn't agree with it. And I still not sure I agree with it today. It sounds like they might have also had the manpower and the you know the capabilities to execute that consistently. So that so they said, but that's still, I guess, relying upon human nature and, and process to fall in line. Interesting. I, I, I definitely want to hear, I mean, the physical security industry has a, a lot of different value chains that the end user can benefit from. And, and like you said, not all end users enlist a physical security consultant for advice or for vulnerabilities. I'd really love for you to kind of tell me what type of end user and why an end user would need physical security consultant and what are some of the, the benefits and insights and value Sure, and sure. Deliverables that you would be getting. Well, that's a a, a bit of a heavy question because there are a lot of different types of consultants and a lot of different different types of services. Yep. The the most common by far uh, that I see is the architectural support. An end user is building a space, changing a space, uh, building a new office, leasing out a new office, and their real estate team is hiring an architect. Most end users don't work with architects every day, aren't used to putting together CAD files or Revit files, drawing packages, don't know the CSI standard processes. So trying to get through a project themselves is sort of like marking up drawings with a crayon and asking someone else to, to make sure it's installed right. Uh, that's that's not always a great approach. Sometimes it works, but it's not always a great approach. So a lot of end users will hire a security consulting firm and although in this role, I typically will call them a security engineering firm, because what they really are is very similar to an MEP engineer, a mechanical electrical plumbing engineer, where they are taking the end user requirements, translating them to an architecturally standard package, a CSI compliant package, and integrating with the architectural process, the AIA process uh, in America. And that's one of the, the key services. Some end users don't see the benefit in that, and they rely on their integrators to mark up drawings and work through it. And historically, I found a much higher success rate and uh, happiness, if that's a, a measurable uh, measurable result, uh, from end users who do use a consultant to take that stress off of their back and to bring in an expert who's good at that, to work along the architectural process. 
the next type of service that is very common is for an end user to reach out for expertise. This is where I call a uh, firm really a security consultant as opposed to a security engineer. This is less about can you draw the camera on the drawing and make sure the detail is correct, more about why do I need a camera? What type of camera do I need? What are the performance requirements for the camera? What problem am I trying to solve? Is a camera the right solution for that problem? To really look at overall their culture, their environment, their goals, their risks, their threats, their business requirements, and their business requirements is certainly a big one, and and make good, solid recommendations on how they can improve their security while still being fully aligned with the business, while still enabling the business to be successful. And whether that business is a financial firm that has regulatory requirements to meet, or that business is a pharmaceutical firm that has very strict compliance requirements, or that business is um, a grocery store and they're worried about slip and fall lawsuits. All of these are business requirements, not necessarily security requirements that security helps enable the business to be successful around. And a proper security consultant takes that end user who should be uh, a good security director is very knowledgeable about security, but they're dealing with one customer. Security consultants deal with many customers, and it's the security consultant's business to be a subject matter expert on not only the technology, but also the state of the industry. Uh, the, the end user is dealing with the day-to-day issues, managing events, managing people getting fired, people quitting, workplace violence, uh, constant changes. There was an accident over here. There's a storm over there worrying about people where the security consultant is brought in as that real real subject matter expert to help them make good, solid decisions right away. And what, what a lot of people don't like to talk about is it also helps justify budget. When you bring in an industry expert that looks at many, many, many customers and gives good, solid recommendations, it helps to justify that the budget you're requesting isn't just something where you're you're trying to make it up. This is a, a consulting firm that specializes in this, and they're giving good, solid recommendations for your business. That's amazing. So in closing, Mike, there there is a big push towards mobile credentials, you know, for so many different reasons. You know, the compounding reality of people losing their cards or key fobs all the time to the security portion, which we've indirectly discussed. What what do you think the future of mobile credentials for access control is? That's a great question. The answer is twofold. I do think mobile credentials will be uh, a very, very prominent solution for the near future. And I'm expecting a bit of a, a peak of valley, a peak of valley type approach. I think mobile credentials are going to take off quickly. And I think they're going to drop off quickly as facial recognition takes off. And you no longer even need to have a, a, a mobile device. Now you're going to have your face's device. Then I would expect, and I don't know for sure, certainly, I would expect that based on some of the trends I'm seeing around legal regulations, that some of the facial recognition will become outlawed or will become so heavily regulated that it's no longer practical, at which point I expect mobile to come back up hot again. And I think some people are going to be proactive and avoid facial because they're worried about regulation and privacy. I think some people are going to take the plunge down the facial route and uh, avoid mobile. But both, I believe, will become prominent in the fairly near future. They already are, but even more prominent in the future. Uh, One challenge that I have not solved yet, and I've seen a couple of people trying to solve but haven't seen a great solution yet, is uh, 
the way to identify who's authorized once they're in a space for other people to know. So historically, it's pretty traditional that if you're in, in a corporate environment, there's a badge hanging around your neck. And if you see someone who doesn't have a badge around their neck, they're probably supposed to have a visitor sticker on or a visitor badge. And if they had neither, in most corporate environments, the people are trained that you're supposed to say, hi, can I help you? Are, are you here for a reason? Why are you here? As we go to mobile credentials. Right, a culture of security. Absolutely. Enabling every person in the business to be a force multiplier for the security team by clearly identifying who's supposed to be there and who's not. And of course, you can make a fake badge and all of those types of things. But most of the time, most of the time, when someone's being nosy, they're not that proactive. Some people are targeted attackers, sure. But when the random person walks in off the street, whether they're psychologically challenged or a typical criminal, most of the time they just sneak in through a door that's open anyway. They're usually not wearing a fake badge. They're usually not wearing a fake visitor badge. And I feel that's going to hurt when we go to full mobile, when we go to full facial. I think that's going to hurt our our security culture and our force multiplier culture. And uh, whether we supplement that with technology or other controls, I don't know. That's that's a fear I have right now. I, I never thought about it that way. That could definitely change the, the culture and, and the customer service-like provisioning for, for customers, you know, for security. You know, I, I've always really understood that if you're training people the right way, you're training them with a culture of security, with empathy, with kindness, and you do that consistently over time, that culture yields so many um, incredible returns for an organization that sometimes, I know we're in the tech business, but sometimes the tech doesn't matter if you can execute on that. This has been a really great conversation, and man, I feel like we could do this uh, for a few more hours. So maybe next time we dive in more about uh, future hypothesis of electronic access control systems, and because I think the tail end of what we just discussed is really we can expand on a lot more. Michael, thank you for being my my second guest on Security in Focus. I really uh, I'm very grateful for you, my friend. Thank you. Very welcome, Tom, and thanks so much for inviting me. My pleasure. Thanks, everybody. You've been listening to Security in Focus, a service of Umbrella Technologies. For more information, go to umbrellatech.co.